the accidental engineer welcome all it's your host max mountner of the accidental engineer today we are joined by amitai schleier renowned agile coach and master pianist maybe i can pull up an audio track of amitai's piano playing in the midst of all of this but for audience that are curious i mean a lot of our audience are probably familiar with agile and uh, a lot of the practices around uh, coaching uh, teams of software developers. But for people who don't know, it would be good to hear from your from your own mouth, Amitai. What is it that an Agile coach does? Gosh, well, first of all, thanks for having me. Uh, and second of all, I would like to dispel any misconceptions listeners may immediately have acquired hearing that I'm a master pianist. I just like to play the piano. <laughs> I don't actually know how to do it all that well. I do love it, but that's a different thing. Okay, so Agile coaching, uh, it's a really big umbrella, and it means a lot of different things to different people uh, because the word Agile also means a lot of different things to different people. I'm not going to go too far with that one, but uh, to me, Agile coaching most often means one of two things, one that I see and one that I do. Uh, the one that I see most often is people who are not programmers and have not been programmers uh, trying to help organizations react to market conditions in a faster way, a more reactive, uh, more adaptive way, uh, even though they don't know the specifics of how to help software teams do that, which is really hard. It's hard even if you do, but it's especially hard if you don't. And then there's what I do, which is I focus more on making the teams able, helping the teams become able, more able, uh, to react to the changing needs of whatever the business thinks is important or what customers think is important with a focus on what the software teams do. So I'm very interested, as other Agile coaches are, in organizational change and team dynamics and power and influence and all that kind of stuff. It's, a, it's necessary to have an eye on that. But what I do day to day is I sit with programmers and I program with them. That's, that's uh, maybe... Uh... An experience that are a lot of, a lot of our audience may not have ever had. Uh, what does the, the engagement look like when an agile coach uh, is brought in to help a team? Uh, I think there, our audience may be experienced with working with product managers or may have uh, a, a designated scrum master where they might work as a software engineer. But what do engagements that you have with clients look like? Well, uh, I've had a few different kinds, and there's I can think of one extreme that I recommend against now that I've seen how well it doesn't work, and another extreme that I recommend for because I think it works really well. Uh, the, the first time I was a coach, uh, I was just an employee of a consultancy, and so I, I took the assignment that I was given, and that was to embed with one team every day for a year. And that didn't work super well. There were a lot of reasons why it was a difficult assignment to begin with, one of which is that I was brand new to coaching. Uh, there were some organizational challenges. There were um, past behaviors in that department that were uh, constraining current behaviors. People had memories of when they had been treated badly, and even though that wasn't happening anymore, it was a limitation for them. Uh, but in short, the engagement that time was every week, every day, for a year with that team, and in the end, I didn't get very far. Uh, I helped a few people improve their own, you know, work and a little bit personal lives, because when your work life improves, your life improves. Um, 
but I didn't help the team a lot. I don't think I helped the program a lot. Uh, and I would try to avoid doing an engagement with that shape again. Because if you think about it, the goal of a coach, uh, you might think of it as kind of analogous to, it's not the same as, and I'm definitely not qualified, but it's analogous to therapy. Uh, a person or a group or, uh, you know, a, people, a set of people with a particular relationship that want to be more themselves or want to be more with each other or want to, you know, change their behaviors to suit their context in a better way uh, and be more in the present with what is present. In a way, that's what Agile is asking for. Um, it's kind of like that. Of course, if somebody has a serious problem, it's not like that at all. I'm not skilled for that. I hope I'm not in that situation. But in the sense that the corporate environment is tough, it's a little bit like that. And so what I'm trying to do is not have answers. I'm trying to reflect for people um, what they already know that they might bring to bear. If they're looking for ideas, of course, I, I often have some or I can figure out how to come up with ideas together. But the way that I would suggest a coaching engagement with me these days, because it's worked much better, is to do it in an agile way. So a year is like a big bang. It's like, a, it's like have me for, for a whole time, let's budget for an entire year, and let's find out a year from now what behavior has changed when Amitai leaves. That's a really expensive way to find out what changes when Amitai leaves. Uh, there are many cheaper ways. And what I would suggest is do something with an iteration, with a cadence, just like, like Agile itself does. So you do, you do a sprint or an iteration, and it could be like a week or two weeks or whatever, uh, and people are used to that from their development teams. You could also have me visit on a cadence, and I would suggest that be something like a two-week visit and then a four-week not visit. And in two weeks, and we can talk about the format of the two weeks also, but in the two weeks, that's just enough time for a team or teams to form a new habit or two, if there's something that we did together that makes sense to them. And four weeks when I'm not there is just enough time to lose the habit if it was just me breathing down their neck that made them have it in the first place, or keep the habit if it really helps them adapt to their own situation. And so the way I like to pitch this to clients is, if you have me for three visits on this kind of a cadence and nothing sticks, you should stop paying me. And I really like that accountability. For sure, for sure. One of the ways you described this just now that really sticks with me is describing how an agile coach is helping a business deal with changing market conditions or something along those lines. Correct me if I'm wrong. But for people who might be imagining the kinds of circumstances that uh, leads a client to seek out an agile coach or the recommendation of one, uh, I'm guessing that kind of describes teams that are maybe missing delivery dates or experiencing uh, breakdown in their software development life cycles. Is, is that accurate? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I don't, my experience is just an anecdote out of, out of the sea of all the things people are doing. But in my experience, uh, like if you're a startup and you're small, uh, you already kind of have an idea either what your market is or what you want it to be. And you have some awareness of how long you have to get some fit with that market. If you're, a big, slower, larger, already successful in the past company, that's typically the kind of company that needs help learning, relearning how to change quickly. In their, in their early days, they must have because they found a market and they fit it and that's why they're here. But once you get big, one of the things that an organization is for 
is for staying the same, for doing the things that it already knows how to do in an optimized way and resisting attempts to change that. And so it just comes with the territory. Those are the kinds of places that maybe identify that they need to change and necessarily have a lot of challenges before they can. I'd be very remiss if I didn't also mention that Amitai hosts his own podcast, Agile in Three Minutes. I've got to give him a shout out and I highly recommend checking it out. Uh, it's a series of very short episodes, you know, three minutes-ish uh, of Amitai's various uh, kind of daily, I would say, readings of uh, general principles to think about, uh, maybe not necessarily applications around uh, concepts in Agile and how to think about your relationships with your coworkers, power dynamics, uh, stressors, uh, process problems. Uh, so if you haven't already heard of Agile in Three Minutes, uh, I'd highly recommend checking out Amitai's podcast. Uh, I, we should uh, maybe walk it back a little bit and talk about Amitai's background. Uh, I do mention he's a master pianist. Uh, he uh, did not get a computer science degree. He got a music degree. Uh, so maybe we can talk a little bit about how you found your way to software engineering and then to coaching. Sure. So um, I think my, my background for this, for this show, I think you have people on with non-traditional paths into software development. Mine is going to be non-traditional for this show in that I grew up doing programming. I was doing it the whole time. Uh, I just wound up not studying it in college. But so um, I remember in elementary school, we were lucky enough to have Apple IIs. And so now you know exactly how old I am. And uh, the in in a certain class, I think it was first or second grade, there was some, some math that we would do as a class, as a class activity. And there was a way to finish it faster uh, if you were good at math like I was. And so my goal was to just optimize finishing the math work in class because then I would get sent up to the library. And that's where the Apple IIs were. And I don't remember a lot about how I figured out how to type things into the basic environment. I don't have any strong memories about that. I just have memories of getting out of the classroom and going up to the library because it was so exciting to, to be sent out of class to learn. And um, that was the beginning. Uh, we got a Mac at home back when the Macintosh was new. Uh, there, we didn't get the very first one, but we got one of them that looks like that, the Mac Plus, like the original one with the handle on the top that uh, was famously demonstrated in the mid-'80s when Apple first came out with it. And that turned that turned into a story, I would say, 10-plus years later that was really formative for me. So in high school, in the mid-'90s, uh, I was still a math nerd. I was still interested in these computer things. And I was reading about fractals, because fractals look amazing. When you look at them, they're just astonishingly interesting images. And they have these relations to math that I was barely able to understand, but I wanted to. And so I thought, I'm reading the book. There's a book by uh, mathematician Benoit Mandelbrot, or I guess we say Mandelbrot in English. He's French. And he invented, or discovered, I guess is probably a better word, uh, a particular set in the complex plane. The complex plane is kind of like the regular XY plane, except that the real numbers are the X part and imaginary numbers, which are square roots of one, multiples of that, is the, is the Y axis. And he discovered an object that is 
I think if I remember right, infinitely complex is the right way to say it because you it's, it's not self-similar in the way that many fractals are. It keeps changing at each level of, of zoom and in each area of the object. And so it's, and it winds up being a map of a lot of things about math also. So anyway, I'm a kid. I didn't understand all this yet. And I barely understand it now, but I wanted to explore it and I had a computer and you need one because the way that you make a Mandelbrot set is not Mandelbrot set is probably what I should say is not, uh, you know, let me, let me write down on a piece of paper. I put in an X and I get out a Y and then I put it on the piece of paper. It would take you a very, 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 very long time to do it without a computer. The way that you compute each point in the graph is that you put it into an equation recursively some number of times. Uh, and the number of times is something like 20 to begin with is pretty good. And then the further in you go, the more times you have to iterate. And so that's for each pixel on the screen. And if the absolute value gets bigger than two, then it's going to run away to infinity. It's not in the set. And if it stays less than that, then it probably is in the set. And if you had a color screen, which I did not, because the Mac Plus was old school, then you could color the escape velocities for the points that weren't in the set, and it would look really cool. And then the points that are in are black. And I just tried to color the points that were black. So I used the book by the guy that invented the set, discovered the set. And it's just a nested for loop. You go across the screen, pixel by pixel, down the screen, row by row, and you do this math. And if it's in, it's black. And if it's out, it's white. There was one problem. I mean, it worked. But it took nine hours to find out that it worked. And the whole time, it was that old school busy cursor where like the whole computer is frozen doing nothing. And so I didn't know how long I was going to have to wait. And I didn't know when it was done, if it would ever finish. It's kind of like the halting problem. Uh, maybe I just crashed the computer. I have no idea. Eventually it finished and it gave me the image and it was nine hours later and I was like, cool, it worked. That wasn't very fun though. And I wanted it to be fun. And also like if I wanted to do what the researchers do, they're zooming in on this. They're looking at different parts of it to see what changes and what it relates to. It's going to get slower every time because the more you zoom in, the more iterations you have to do to get an accurate picture. So it's never going to be faster than nine hours. It's only going to be slower every time I make a move. This is not going to be fun. Is there something I can do that would make this fun? So I thought about the problem. I thought about where, where would this be slow? I didn't have the idea of, of performance profiling or anything. I was just thinking like, why, why would this be nine hours? Even though my computer is slow, why would it be so slow? And so I thought, I don't actually have an interest in every single point on the inside of the set. That's the black part, the, the image that you see. I don't have an interest in the points that are outside of the set either, although that's, that's not the slow part because if it runs away to infinity before the iterations are up, then you can stop. You can skip that one and don't have to do all the iterations. It's the ones that are in the set that make it slow, and I'm only really interested in the ones on the edge. If I could leave out the vast interior, I could probably get a lot faster with how this runs. And so I thought, let me... Let me do a kind of a walk where I'm looking for state changes, where like if it's, if I go up and it changes from out to in, then I should probably, you know, go to the right and left and see where the boundary changes again. And just that way I don't go more than two or three pixels too far in any direction. And I'm really only tracing the edge. So I did that and it ran in 12 minutes and I could see it go. Yeah. And that was like a 45 times speed up, I think is what that is. And it made it fun. And it was because I, I thought about this problem with my own brain and decided that what I need, 
with my computer, with my constraints, is this like this path tracing. And then I could then I could play. And that was awesome. So I didn't even understand. Like, is this is this math? Is this programming? Like what what is this field? I don't know, but I should do more with that. I think this raises a really interesting point about learning and self-teaching is that the ultimate uh, incentive for, you know, getting traction on a problem is being interested in the problem at all in the first place. And I think a lot of dysfunction that happens in maybe software development life cycles when you're delivering a product to paying customers or maybe not paying customers uh, is that you might not, your team that you might employ as a as an employer may not may not be particularly interested in the problem set or maybe the problems that this given client is bringing to your team may not be interesting to them so is that is is the motivation element of agile coaching a big part or what i guess where where is the most common source of dysfunction that an agile coach can help treat I don't know that I could point to one. Uh, speaking about motivation is definitely an important one. Uh, I can say when I'm doing self-directed learning, like I was in high school with that with that program, uh, having my own motivation was enormous. That was a huge factor. I wouldn't have learned that otherwise. And frankly, if I had a faster computer, I might not have had such an insight and such an awesome experience. Um, in a corporate context, when I'm coaching, or, you know, when I've been on a development team, because I, I try to alternate between coaching and being in a team. Uh, when I'm in a team, I usually start with a domain or a problem that is not dear to me to begin with. It's somebody else's thing. It matters to them. I'm going to learn about it. And in the course of learning about it, I'm going to find that it starts to matter to me. Because I'm a, I'm a human person. I'm social. I'm one of the animals that's in the ape family. And... In some way, it's natural for me to care about what other members of my family care about. And so uh, I won't start caring about whatever, you know, financial technology problem you're trying to solve right now. But once I see why you care about it and what it helps you with when you solve it, now I do care. And then that becomes motivation. So I don't have to have that to start. I think that may be different person to person. Uh, In a corporate context, we also come up against um, incentives behavioral incentives, uh, performance incentives, uh, what people are rewarded for, what they think they're going to be rewarded for, uh, what they're punished for, what they think they might be punished for. And those are often operating quietly at all times and affecting the choices people make. And so when, when a manager thinks, you know, I've been a manager and I've thought this, when a manager thinks this team is unmotivated, I need to light a fire under them, maybe, but maybe there are more complicated things going on because you ha- you hired people who learned this stuff and know how to do this stuff and know how to learn on the job. Maybe something happened or is happening or a sequence of things is happening that makes it hard for them to care in the way that they wish that they could. And so maybe you're not seeing people who are, are tuned out. You're seeing people who have learned for reasons that we can try to figure out to tune out. And if we can figure out those reasons and we can change them and we can convince people piece by piece that the reasons have changed, then they may find the motivation that they came there with. And that's that's an important thing that happens pretty often. Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, when, when it comes to that loss of focus, 
what what's kind of the remunerative series of steps to take to to suss out why why people have lost focus like uh maybe maybe it's overwhelming fear of repercussions um is is it is is loss of trust a, a piece of it um i know that's a topic that you've raised a fair amount on agile in 3 minutes but with as a as a coaching engagement goes and with the number you might do a year you're pretty frequently entering and rapidly having to earn trust whereas the people who you're uh, coaching they may have worked together for years um how do you see the the breakdown of trust manifest in in the teams you might coach and what is the series of steps that they may not be foolproof but what are the series of steps you see for uh healing lost trust well when i come in um the first thing that I have to do, I have a small window of time because I'm an outsider and people are going to take the measure of me pretty quickly. Am I somebody that has good intentions and the ability to help them? Or am I somebody that has somebody else's intentions and no ability to help them or something in the middle? And they're gonna decide that pretty quickly. And once they've decided that, my path is much more restricted. And so my goal in that first couple of weeks is to show them in some way, whatever way makes sense to them, that I'm here to help them and that I'm able to do that. Typically what that means is, you know, I'm going to have my own impressions when I first come in. I'm going to have, you know, whatever the the hiring executive or manager uh, thinks the problem is that made them bring me in. I'm going to have their opinion about that. But what I don't have yet are the opinions of the people in those teams. And they may have their own point of view on why things are difficult or what would help them first. Or maybe, you know, maybe not the biggest problem, but the nearest one, the one that everybody agrees annoys them on a daily basis, but nobody has individually taken the time to fix. And when there's something like that, I just take that assignment. That's for me, even if it's especially if it's grunt work, uh, something that has, has no glamour to it, but everybody agrees like it's a problem they've identified, something with a build system or a dependency or uh, something about how the unit tests are run, you know, something really, really tedious, uh, but that everybody wishes were different. And I take it and I fix it and I bring it back to them as an offering. Do you mind getting specific about what those persistent problems might be that you've helped solve? Uh, so one team that I came in with that was uh, really disinclined to spend time with me Uh I had a hard time getting myself bootstrapped into being part of what they do. And one of the things that I found is uh, this was a place where uh, J unit unit tests were one of the things that they had to do to say that a story was done. It was part of the definition of done. Step, step but, yeah. back a sec. Maybe, yeah. maybe for our audience yeah. that aren't familiar with J unit, aren't familiar with this exact piece of the software development life cycle. Give, give a, give us a little context here about, uh, why, why there might be this I'll requirement. Define some and, yeah, please. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, story, user story, that's a thing from Agile. Um, maybe that one's pretty well known, but the idea is uh, we're trying to frame the work in terms of who is it for and how will they benefit uh, as opposed to like the system needs to or as developers, we think it would be a good idea if uh, we're thinking of who the system is for and how it helps them and the story should be framed like that. Um, 
so we're talking about stories. We're talking about um, there's something called definition of done, which is an agile concept that is sometimes used. Uh, people are often fuzzy on when something is done. What does it mean for something to be done? Definition of done is kind of like a checklist that is negotiated by the team, maybe with the scrum master, maybe with the product owner, maybe with customers, if you can be so lucky. Um, you could say that it's something that the developers do. You could say it's something that the developers and the testers all have to agree on in a certain way. Uh, you could even say like when it's been in production for a few weeks and the customer still likes it, then it's done. They're all, you, could, you could choose whatever you want and teams have to negotiate that for themselves. That's a definition of done. In this case, I'm not sure how the definition was negotiated. It just was that way when I got there. Uh, and I, I could guess that it wasn't made as a group decision because of what the unit tests look like. Uh, before we get to that, JUnit is a framework for Java, which is a programming language. Uh, it's one of the earliest and most popular unit testing frameworks. We now have tons and tons of unit testing frameworks in tons of languages. Uh, but JUnit was one of the earliest, biggest ones. It really set a trend for uh, a, a way to design this kind of a framework. And it's still really popular and still being developed. Uh, so if you're writing in Java, JUnit is probably what you're writing your unit tests in. Uh, unit tests are small automated tests that exercise um, ideally a small, fast piece of the code. I like to also say micro tests. That's, uh, unit test is just kind of a set phrase that people say, but it can mean a wide variety of things including really slow tests that take minutes to run and are maybe not reliable one way or the other. So I like to say micro tests when what I really mean is a small, fast, deterministic, you know, fraction of a second runs on a function or a class, doesn't hit the disk, doesn't hit the network, whatever, really small and fast. So that's what I was talking about. Uh, popping back to uh, this team clearly had a definition of done that included to, to call this story done, we all have to make sure that there are JUnit tests accompanying the feature or the change in behavior or the bug fix. And I could tell by looking at the tests that it probably wasn't a group decision because they had done the bare minimum to be able to say that they had written JUnit tests. They had done so little that most of these tests didn't have assertions in them. An assertion is the thing where you, you've called your function in your code and you said, I believe that when I do this, I should get this. And that's the whole point. That's what a test is. It's the assertion. Everything else is decoration about that. And so they had like their code coverage would look fine because functions got called. They just never made an assertion about it. So there's no way the test could ever be read. So it's not really much of a test. So that was a clue. But then I looked back in the history and I noticed so right now, it doesn't seem like they place a lot of value on these tests. They just, they'd have to, so they do it, but they, it doesn't, doesn't help them in a way that they understand. So they don't use it that way. But I went back and looked through other tests to see if this had ever been different. And uh, I just tried to run all of them. And many of them did have assertions. And many of them were red because the code had changed since the last time somebody had ever run them. But some of them were green. And so I thought, I'm going to try to teach these people about the value of automated tests, especially if you can write them first. And I think a step toward that might be to help them get value from work they did a long time ago, uh, especially if it's something they didn't even realize could be valuable now. So I took it out myself. I got a big monitor and put it in their team space. I set up Jenkins, which is a continuous integration build environment. Uh, and I 
took all of the tests that they had written back in the day that were passing, that were green, and enabled them and set up a CI environment. And then just to make clear, like we're not done yet, I wrote down the number of the tests that I had had to turn off because they were red. And that way we could track, you know, gradually working that number down to get all the value they already provided themselves. But so then they noticed as they would push code that they could look in their team space and see that it was either green or red. And then we could, you know, now that there's a feedback loop here, maybe it would help if we put some assertions in the test that we write because it would give us some feedback in this environment pretty quickly about whether what we did works well or not. And then we could think about tightening the feedback loop where if we run it on our computer first, we don't have to wait until we look at the big screen. We can find out earlier than that. And so this to me, uh, on the one hand, it's, it's one of these kinds of offerings, like I'm going to do boring work if it helps you. That's what I'm here for. I'm here to help you. And secondly, uh, as a coach, one of my biggest jobs, maybe the job, is to find where there were feedback loops in this team, uh, in this organization that used to exist, that you know broke open, and reclose them so that the company can steer itself. And this is a really small example of that, but it's you know it's kind of foundational, and so that's what I brought them first. A very poignant uh, story I've heard around this topic of uh, r- mandatory process, which is what it sounds like got imposed upon this team uh, is that process is this byproduct of uh, historical failures. And so when a organization fails, it comes up with some mandatory process to, you know, help guarantee that it won't reoccur, that the failure won't reoccur. And this is kind of that scenario where something goes wrong, the CEO finds out, the CEO, you know, holds their executive responsible that owns whatever problem occurred and asks them, how can you make sure this might not ever happen again? And the response is usually a process. And if they don't have a process thought up, they there tends to be a finite lifetime to that person's career at that <laughs> in that role. Um, so processes are but this byproduct of failure or in many cases. And uh, I, I've seen exactly what Amitai describes on teams I've worked on where, yeah, there's a, there's a failure for the business in some form, maybe a production outage, maybe data loss. And this, the executive asks, how can we make sure this never happens again? And maybe they come up with their idea. Maybe they run that idea by uh, frontline employees, but it ends up introducing a process and these processes uh, and like the whole uh, collection of processes the business operates in are, you know, aiming to guarantee the survival of the business. But man, does it have some unintended uh, side effects? One of them being that uh, maybe when you make something mandatory like testing, you're going to get garbage tests. And man, I, I can, I can rattle off a few properties of the, the, the bad things about, uh, mandatory tests, but one of them is like Amitai describes people writing tests that invoke your code, but don't actually assert anything about it. Uh, some of the other no-nos I've seen have, have been people writing tests that have a try catch. So an exception may or may not occur, uh, in your method under test. And when they catch an exception, they just continue. And, uh, the, the tendency that, uh, 
that leads to these kinds of tests being written is is one, people probably wouldn't write these tests if they weren't required to. Uh, but what they're shooting for is some kind of metric or goal. Like the goal might be, like Amitai describes, that you have to have tests if you want your work to be considered done. Uh, the second might be code coverage requirements or line percentage code coverage requirements. You might hear that you need tests that evaluate, you know, 60% of your code uh, in order for your, your code to be acceptable. And the way to get code coverage is to invoke your code and then not do anything with the results or check any of the side effects. So, man, I've seen this a fair amount of practice uh, and um, people will say that the the resolution of this is to reassess your process or to have more rigorous code review. But man, when you have a historical uh, test suite, um, it, one of the things I, I've thought about recently that I'm curious to hear Amitai's take on it is a test suite is, is, a, is an asset, I guess. And if you evaluate it like a financial asset, just like you'd evaluate a product uh, or a company with a product as a financial asset and owning equity in that company test suites can be can can be positive financial value or they can even be negative financial value they can be so slow or so flaky that they're of negative value and i i think a lot of people who might have walked away from testing uh with their hands up may have experienced those negative aspects and and there's no culture around recognizing that if a test suite's bad maybe it's not worth using. Um, and knowing whether a test suite's good or not, that's that's something that, uh, you know, venture capitalists aren't interested in. <laughs> or, or, you know, your company investors are not interested in, the, in really vetting out or sussing out the quality of your test suite. So for, for teams that, that are worried about, you know, their, their delivery and getting mandatory processes pushed on them, um, how can how can you know your rank and file engineers, your software engineers, think about curating and devoting time to you know improving the the test suite as an asset versus as a uh, as a as a process requirement? I I think it's a really productive way to think about the test suite. Uh, tests are code, so just like code, there's cost to writing them. And if it's not far exceeded by the value of having them, then you've taken a step in the backward direction. Uh, just like with code, code is the, the way that I like to think about it. I think I got this from Dan North. Code is a liability. Functionality is the asset. And so if we had, like just in theory, if we had a way, even though I love writing code, if we had a way to solve everyone's problem with zero code, that is an infinite ratio of functionality to liability. Infinite. Now, typically, we're not going to be able to reach that because something about this problem needs some automation, and that's where we come in. Um, but if there was a way that we could get a really high ratio of functionality to liability, then we're doing really well. And if we find ourselves getting into where like each new piece of functionality is accompanied by about the same amount of liability, then something's going on here. We should talk about it. And if it turns out that it's negative, then whoa, hold up, stop, what are we doing? Uh, and the same thing is true with tests. Tests are, are they're not going to go into production, but they help you decide what does. And 
those decisions you wind up making, uh, I would say on the course of a typical day as a programmer, hundreds or perhaps thousands of decisions, not all of them explicitly. Some of them are just habits at this point, but there are hundreds or thousands of decisions every day about what is correct, what is safe, uh, where am I taking a risk here, what am I doing to mitigate the risk, uh, if this goes wrong, how are we likely to find out about it, all that kind of stuff over and over again every day. It is tiring on a brain, and we cannot think of everything. So one of the biggest functions that uh, a test provides, or a test suite when you do it in the aggregate, is uh, every time it occurs to me that there's something important that we should always keep track of about how the system behaves, and I'm a regular person, so I'm going to forget it sometimes. Can I get the computer to help me with this? Can I get the computer to check that this is always true or tell me when it stops being true? Good. Then I can let it out of my brain, which is really important because I got a lot of other things I'm going to think about today. So the, the idea of, of uh, evaluating a test suite uh, on the whole or part by part uh, of what does it do for me and what does it cost me to get that? Uh, is a great way to think about it. Uh, we mentioned earlier that uh, I like to say micro-tests for the really small, fast tests, and that unit test has become kind of a blanket term for anything that runs in the test runner. Uh, this seems like a good time to mention that there's a test pyramid, which is a nice concept of uh, where to focus your testing efforts. And it might seem counterintuitive, but a lot of things about software development are counterintuitive. Uh, the test pyramid says... Most, by far, most of your tests should be the really small, fast ones, exercising a very small granular piece of code, uh, a function, a class, like we were saying, no external resources, something that runs in a fraction of a second, that if you had you know, several hundred of these, it would run in a second or two, or less. Um, those are micro-tests. Those are what we meant as XP, extreme programming people, back in the day when we said unit tests. Um, on top of that, you could have, there's just a sequence of, a sequence of layers of uh, maybe an integration test that shows how two classes collaborate or how your code and a third-party library or dependency collaborate um, so that, you know, if it's down, you're sure that you handle that the way that you want to, uh, or if the API changes, you can find that at build time, um, things like that. And then at the very top, you know, like the little, the little eye of the pyramid uh, would be the really slow end-to-end maybe even scripting the UI for one or two things just to see, like, have we really glued all of these pieces together? Let's just make sure. And the reason that this is what most of us advise, fewer end-to-end -end tests, fewer UI tests, more micro-tests, is that if you think about what a software system is doing, it is a huge combinatoric explosion of small pieces talking to each other. And the only hope we have of the whole system, more often than not, doing what we would want, if we even knew what we wanted, is if we make sure that all the small pieces work as well as we possibly can, and that the small pieces talk to each other as well as they possibly can, and then, you know, then the math is probably in our favor. And what's really neat about this is the tests for all the small pieces and how the small pieces talk to the other small pieces are really fast. And so we can run them dozens, hundreds of times a day. I, I do. I get I get pretty addicted to that. There's a dopamine hit when you run your tests because you change something that you're not sure about and it tells you that it's fine. There's even a little dopamine hit when you run your tests and it tells you something's not fine because that's way better than finding about it any other way. And so this, when a test suite is valuable, this is what it does for you. It gives you 
uh, feedback for things that you want to try. And that enables you to try many more times a day. There's a great talk by Justin Searles from Test Double, where uh, my favorite slide is about partway through. We can find this and put this in the show notes. Uh, he shows as a function of how many, like how long does your test suite take to run and how many things do you get to try per day? And then how do you feel at the end of that day? Productive and successful or tired and not very successful? And it's entirely a function of how long it takes the test to run. It can change your mood. It can change your developer life. It's hugely important, but it's counterintuitive. And the skills required to write tests that work this way are not obvious themselves. And typically what happens when you're writing these tests is you find it's difficult to write them that way because the code isn't structured that way. And then you have to decide, like, how much do I want to change my production code so that it's possible to test it? And was that really what I was trying to do right now? Maybe I'll just write a bigger, slower test. And so a whole other way to come at this, which is what I like to teach, is called test-driven development, TDD, where it's pretty easy to get tests that are shaped the way you want and run as fast as you want because you write them first. And then you adjust the system to make that work. Uh, and it's extremely counterintuitive, especially like in a compiled language where you're, uh, you're writing an assertion about an object that you haven't even defined yet and you got squiggles in your editor because there's no such constructor or there's, you know, the, how's this, why is this even, it's, it's stupid. It's, this is stupid. Why am I doing this? And then you try it and you may find, as I have found, that it changes your entire life, not just your programmer life, your entire life. So that's why I try to teach it. I know this may seem like an ancillary detail. We've had a few guests on that are founders of continuous integration hosting providers. We, um, uh, a guy named Fyodor Korotkov, who started Cirrus CI. We've had on the two co-founders of Circle CI. Uh, you mentioned in your engagement where you brought Jenkins to the team and introduced them to running tests on any change uh, that you'd brought up a Jenkins instance. and. I think one one point in decision making or even getting started with uh, a first continuous integration setup is figuring out how to set it up even in the first place uh, and how to administrate it, how much time is spent on parenting your your continuous integration system versus you know delivering value or functionality for customers. So for for people who are curious about, what your recommendations are around maybe getting the ball rolling with continuous integration. Uh, would you recommend to uh, um, people generally that they, that they learn about how to set up Jenkins or do you recommend trying out uh, a dedicated hosting provider of CI? What, what do you think, uh, who, who, what experience do you think provides the best onboarding to uh, someone who may have not bought into CI yet? I have at least three opinions, so I'm going to try them all and see where I end up. Uh, one is, so I'm, I'm thinking of this is a new project that we're just starting versus this is a project we already have. That's one thing I'm thinking about. Another thing I'm thinking about is uh, CI as a, like a service versus CI as a way of thinking. So let me try and muddle my way through and maybe maybe it'll get clear by the end. When it's when it's a new team developing a new product, my biggest piece of advice is go to production with something tiny first. 
and figure out as you get to production, is something in the way, fix it? Uh, is there something that's going to be risky or unrepeatable about it? Automate it. Uh, is there something that makes you need some staging? Stage it. Uh, just get to production with something. And then you can iterate on that and add increments to that. Uh, the reason I say this is that every so often in my own programming career, I make the mistake of not doing this. I did it recently with a recent client where for a variety of reasons, we had convinced ourselves, uh, in this case, this was a brownfield project, but we were replacing from scratch an existing system because we could not figure, this is something I also don't like to do. When you have legacy code, old code that's valuable and hard to change, I really like to incrementally make it more habitable and work with what we have. We could not figure out, in this case, any way to do that. And so we were writing from scratch. Uh, and we compounded the mistake, assuming that was a mistake, by not going to production on the client systems until many months later. And it turned out that there were complications about that deployment process that we had not encountered and were now making our schedule hard to predict. And so these uh, deployment is something that is full of risks. Maybe if you're brand new, you don't meet them all at once. But maybe if you're in a, in a brownfield system, you're going to meet them all at once. And the sooner you meet them, the sooner you can adjust to them, the sooner you can automate around them, the sooner you can have a predictable schedule where uh, when you do a small new feature, you can expect it to go in in some amount of time because it's, it's incrementally on top of what you already have. And so that's my first biggest piece of advice. If you're starting from scratch, the first thing you need to do is go to production and then incrementally make that better and better and better and incrementally make the product better and better. And you can grow the two things together. So C CI is secondary to going to production. Yeah, then you work backwards to like, what's a good way to get to production if we have five of us working or whatever it is. Then I think I'm going to need some CI so that my CD can be more reasonable. And then, you know, just work backwards from it. You don't have to do it because somebody said it's a good idea. You can do it when you notice that it would help. And you can do it incrementally as you notice that more aspects of it would help. So that's in a new situation. In a, in a situation like I came into in that story, they, I don't even know what their process for getting to production was because it happened maybe once while I was there. Uh, it was amazingly slow. Yeah, it was part of a, part of a big program. Um, but I do know what their daily development process looked like and that having some sort of shared accountability and, and visibility over what they were doing would help them. And so I took a, I took a guess and I said, let me give you, you know, I'll be your, I'll be your Jenkins as a service. I'll do you Jenkins because they had, so that's what they had approved in that company. Um, so let's, let's do that one. That one's fine. Something would be fine. Let's get something. And I set it up for them. And then they, you know, they came to appreciate it. Um, the other point I wanted to make is uh, to me, at least, CI nowadays, uh, just like Agile has, has a lot of meanings and unit tests has a lot of meanings, CI has a lot of meanings. What continuous integration means to me is a way of thinking about our work and our teammates. It's, you know, when I have some code that I think is ready, let me make sure that all of my teammates are basing their work on it. And when they have work that they think is ready, let me make sure that I'm basing my work on it that we're, we're sharing with each other as much as possible. Something that I think is uh, anti-continuous integration is uh, a heavy branching model. Uh, you see about GitFlow or these other branching models. Um, the, the whole pull request workflow, sometimes you really have to, but when you don't, it makes a lot of work. And if it's not worth the work, it's definitely working against that integration. Uh, a workflow that I love when you can arrange the team to do it is that you push to master. 
And that makes it really easy for integration to be happening. It's never not happening. Um, so to me, continuous integration, you could do it without a build machine. You could do it without a build server. You could do it without a hosting provider. It's something that people make habits of in the team about what they do with their code and how they make sure they share it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did that I, eventually get clear? It is. It is. I, I, I think the, the reason I asked the question that I asked is because I think that on software teams, there's a, a, there's two goals. One is, you know, deliver on the things the product manager asks of you. And the other is lead a sane work life. And I think one of the things that happens with self-hosted continuous integration is that, uh, or at least self-administrated continuous integration systems is that uh, the you end up with this uh, the DevOps team and the DevOps team owning your continuous integration systems. And you end up with a devoted, maybe full-time employee or team of full-time employees that administrate your Jenkins box or boxes um, because what often happens is quickly the team might grow and maybe one server that previously ran everyone's tests when they make changes uh, just it doesn't suffice and people are waiting in line for the Jenkins box to you know perform their test suite so it ends up snowballing in responsibility and importance and it's very important to the business that you know product features and functionality uh, don't have regressions when they get into the hands of customers as people make changes. But man, there's a there's that's an interesting issue. I think is when when CI is introduced to a team and set up for the team, um, who carries the torch forward? Who pays the administrating uh, uh, labor of your team's continuous integration systems? And uh, that becomes really diffuse at a company maybe like Google where Google has probably teams of hundreds or thousands working on their continuous integration tooling. But when you're a team of, you know, like 10 (laughs) or 20, um, it's just another scale of problem where uh, maybe you don't have the uh, staffing or interest in administrating a CI. Uh, And and that that whole cost of, of recurring cost of maintaining your CI and test suite plays really into that pro- issue I was mentioning earlier, which is like, what's the what's the total value of your test suite? Like, the slower it is, the less valuable it is. The more flaky it is, the less valuable it is. And like, how when you go to evaluate uh, the the level of productivity of a client of yours, Amitai, it's like, um, I'm guessing there's tr- clients you've worked with who have rock solid CI and they're like super good on that front or what's what's kind of the 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 state of the art that you've witnessed i guess uh state of the art is um something i've read about i haven't tried it uh there's this new language and development environment and deployment environment called dark and it looks fascinating uh it's all integrated and there is no intermediate step you you know you change a function you save it and it's in production and everything is like auto feature flagged. It's amazing. I would love to try it. I haven't tried it yet. Of course, this is not available to everybody who is not using Dark, which is just about everybody. But it's a really interesting solution to the problem of build pipelines are hairy and require their own lifecycle and maintenance. 
And like when you have to start talking about, well, what's the prod version of our pipeline and the non-prod version of our pipeline and how do we CI the pipeline itself, uh, we've made a lot of work for ourselves, haven't we? And is it paying us what we've hired it to do? You know, is it is it worth it? Um, I can think of a case. I was at a, a bank on a development team where for a while we were very serious about test-driven development and, and micro-tests. Um, and we deployed something that ran on the Kerberos servers of this bank uh, as root. So if we made the right mistake, we could prevent anything from authenticating to anything in this entire company. It would have been a pretty, pretty bad mistake. So we were very serious about testing. We didn't have any testers on the team. We just had developers who learned to be paranoid because of the kind of mistakes that were available. Uh, and uh, this was in IT security also. And for quite a while, we didn't have any build environment outside our dev systems. Like I had one, my teammate had one, my other teammate had one. We ran our own tests. We tried to be careful about not doing something that would run differently on a different system. Every now and then when we couldn't convince ourselves that we were sure about that, we could manually get into a staging environment that was like the production system and make sure. Um, but in general, we went to production month after month, which is about as continuous as you can get going to Kerberos servers at a bank. Uh, without having any kind of so-called CI environment. We just did continuous integration with each other with the, with the benefit of the test suite that was really paying for itself. Uh, eventually, we did get a virtual machine that we did set up that was kind of separate from us and did occasionally find mistakes. But we went without it for a while. And in, in that kind of a context, if you can do without that, I think a lot of people can do with less CI than they think. It's just that there are also a lot of people that are doing with zero and they probably need more than that. Yeah. So host, hosted continuous integration vendors are kind of superfluous and really the onus is on you as a, as a software engineer to run your tests. And... It can be. I mean, that's one way to do it. The, the, the complexity has to go somewhere and the risk has to go somewhere. And the question is, what does your team have that fits its cost benefit? Because uh, like you were saying, if, if you have to then have a DevOps team I'm rolling my eyes for those of you who are listening. Uh, I think we all are. Yeah, if you have to have a separate team that manages your CI environment because the team itself can't afford to, that is the wrong direction, especially with Agile. When I'm trying to talk about Agile, the way that you want an Agile team to go is that more and more of the things the team needs in order to deliver are things the team can do itself. And so that would be the wrong direction. If, if managing this additional environment is something the team can't do itself, then we're walking away from the thing we were trying to walk toward. So it's it's all contextual. You asked earlier, you know, what are what are some steps that you would follow? Step one is I come in and try to establish myself as a trustworthy, useful person. Step two is watch and listen. Uh, step three is whatever people think we should try, let's try that. Step four is Let's see how that goes. <laughs> you know, this, those are the steps. Something like that. You know, it's a lot of a lot of uh, getting trust and then experimenting. Yeah, it would be silly if I didn't mention it. But we, it's funny you mentioned Dark because we've actually had both of the co-founders of Dark on the show, uh, Ellen Chiza and Paul Bigger. Uh, They've they've shared. Uh, they haven't shared very. Uh, I, in my opinion, they haven't shared very clearly. You know, like all of the details of their system. But very recently, they've come out more publicly and and shown proofs of concept and uh, videos of 
Darkling in use. So um, I'll, I'll include a link in the show notes f- to those episodes and to Darkling uh, for those who are curious. But for pure people who are curious about finding you, Amitaya, online, how, how can people find you and get a hold of you? Uh, probably the most interactive way would be on Twitter. I'm not quite as mad about following all of my followers and followings that I used to be, but I'm definitely very, very responsive there. You can find me at Schmanz, S-C-H-M-O-N-Z. Uh, I also have my, my longstanding personal website, schmanz.com. Uh, I have the podcast, as was mentioned, Agile in Three Minutes. That's um, agileinthreeminute.es. The government of Spain continues to allow me to have this website. Uh, I have not yet done an episode in Spanish. I don't know any Spanish, but if it comes to it, I may need some help with that. Uh, please do give that a listen. And uh, my consulting site is latentagility.com, L-A-T-E-N-T, agility.com. I think what I'll do to play this out is play a little bit of Amitai's piano performance. But uh, otherwise, Amitai, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Max. For more, visit us on iTunes or our website at theaccidentalengineer.com.